Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If. Only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Come to the Festival of Brexit Britain. What better way to celebrate British independence than by spending three days with us in a rainy field outside Wolverhampton where we've halted fracking plans just for you for a long weekend so you can eat, drink and mostly complain British without the EU stopping you. With music from Dave the Shepherd and his dog whistlers, the innovative jam, Liam and the chlorinated chickens and Morrissey. Eat some of the finest variety of British food with Jamie Oliver's culturally misappropriated van, serving such delicacies as tandoori chicken made with curry sauce and no actual chicken, real Mexican fajitas made with brown bread and egg mayonnaise, and ramen made with only the finest three-year-old tin spaghetti. Plus, loads of entertainment for the kids with our full-size bouncy bridge to Ireland and Project Fear Ghost Train. Tickets on sale now for only a wheelbarrow of worthless £10 notes or for a wheelbarrow of worthless £20 notes, you can camp on our exclusive chemical-free dumping site. Tickets are twice the cost for European citizens, although we are still looking for minimum wage paid security, cleaning and bar staff if you'd like to get in touch. Festival of Brexit Britain. Book now or get in free if you turn up on the day with a pointed stick. Hello and welcome to the Partly Political Broadcast, the podcast that laughs in the face of politics, only for politics to laugh with it, causing me to say, no, wait, we were definitely, definitely laughing at you. How do you even get that wrong? This is episode 114, I'm Tiernan Duyeb, and this week, as punishing bag filled with offal, Boris Johnson suggests that the UK could pursue a Super Canada deal with the EU, I doubt it, as it's likely a Super Canada deal would involve being extra polite, incredibly modest, and for at least half the country to fluently speak French. Now, of course, some of you are thinking, hey Tiernan, that's not what a Super Canada trade deal means, and that I'm being willfully misleading, to which I'd say, hooray, I'm finally qualified to officially comment on Brexit. The Conservative Party Conference 2018, aka Early Halloween, has begun. And for a get-together of people who supposedly share the same principles, and by that I mean a total absence of any, things have already been more divided than an advanced maths course taught by Cardi B while she eats Marmite with a spoon. Before anyone can even say what time is the advanced course in parcel tongue, bizarro Michelin man Boris Johnson announced his manifesto for the Conservatives to win the next election, which oddly didn't just start with kick me out of the party and fire me into the sun, showing that he definitely has absolutely no idea what he's talking about. 
No, instead, Boris's solid alternative for Britain was mainly an attack on Prime Minister and spindle with legs Theresa May, who he accused of not really believing in Brexit. Which, come on, Boris, that is a really stupid thing to say, because we all know that Theresa May doesn't really believe in anything. Let me tell you, there is nothing that adds credence to a statement such as Boris calling May's checkers plan deranged as following it by suggesting that Britain could fix absolutely everything by building a bridge to Ireland. Brilliant! I mean, while it is overall a stupid plan, it does mean that people from Ireland and Northern Ireland would be able to drive over to England so that they could tell Boris to go fuck himself to his stupid face with ease. And actually, I fully support that. Or better yet, why don't we just have a massive zip wire between the highest points in each country and Boris can get stuck somewhere in the middle over the Irish Sea, bringing everyone together as they start a big tourist venture to take people out on boats to point, laugh and throw things at the stupid wobbly man. What is it with Boris's over-the-top infrastructure ideas? Does he assume that by building actual bridges he can just burn party ones endlessly? Or is it just because he's a massive troll who needs somewhere adequate to live? Boris warned May that she couldn't beat Corbyn by becoming Corbyn, which is quite hypocritical for a man insistent on dividing his party with racist comments and ideas that can't be funded. Boris versus May, now it's war, said the headline in the Times, a paper that should really have worst of inserted into its name. And I, for one, hope that this is a battle that they can somehow both lose. But how on earth do you take part in, let alone fight, a war of competitive jingoism? Well, if anyone can, Theresa May. Did you say Festival of Brexit Britain? Because that's the 1950s slightly uncomfortable by today's standard postcard that she smacked down on the already wobbly table. Nothing says I definitely don't know what I'm doing, like asking people to celebrate something that's unlikely to be anything remotely worth celebrating, even in an alternate reality where they hate good things and appraise things that are shit awful and so weirdly Ed Sheeran is still a successful musician. Even then. This festival will take place in 2022 when we'll be three years into Brexit and so by that point it'll either be a festival compromising of a no-deal blitz spirit where we all head into the streets to share our food rations and cheer about the fact that at least the bananas we don't have because we can't get any aren't too straight or it'll be a confused ethereal festival where we're told that things that are already happening are now part of it while the third year of a transition backstop delay nothingness continues leaving the UK in an ever-depressing state of Brexit limbo but hey, at least you're eating your festival sandwich while at the festival park in the festival pouring rain like you do every fucking festival week. The Festival of Brexit Britain will supposedly cost £120 million, so I look forward to the Chancellor announcing which part of Britain will go hungry for May through to September in 2021 to pay for it. And May insists it will celebrate the nation's diversity and talent, so I guess most of the cost will be on satellite link-ups to all the places she's deported them to. This festival plan arrived after May returned from New York, where she promised business leaders that post-Brexit Britain will be a low-tax and smart regulation economy. I've no idea if smart regulation is a lot like smartphones in that it will collapse after two years needing an upgrade, or perhaps it's like smart cars, just very minimal and useless for going the distance. Either way, the Prime Minister told them that Britain would have the lowest corporation tax in the G20, the sort of boast that basically means our global strategy is now the same as Lidl. Sure, you don't know if what you're getting is going to be any quality at all, but it's cheap so you may as well give it a try. I'm fairly sure May will next offer the EU some sort of two-for-one deal where she'll throw in a stupidly oversized bar of out-of-date chocolate in at the end for a quid. 
May also gave a speech to the UN General Assembly, which is their early week one, where they go over what they'll be doing the rest of the term, and then sing a few hymns, I guess. Um, sorry. I mean, she spoke out against Russia, and then they're exploiting a fear and uncertainty to promote identity politics in their own country. Sound familiar? I mean, sure, you could just say, isn't that another massive Freudian projection? Because goddamn, it whiffs of hypocrisy, as we can see the Brexit stink lines fly off it. But at the same time, I actually think that May uh, doesn't do anything like that at all. She's very, very different to what she spoke out against. I mean, you have to have an identity to do identity politics, right? Meanwhile, the Conservative conference itself started with a security fail on the conference app, allowing anyone who used it to get all contact details of anyone else attending, so that includes MPs, diplomats and supervillains, which is a very drastic full-on way to communicate with the electorate. Was this a prototype run of a backdoor into encryption as part of May's Snoopers charter? But you know, where the backdoor is at the front of the digital property and just left wide open with a big old welcome mat outside? Who knows? But either way, it was fixed with an apology within 30 minutes, pleasing Dominic Raab, who's now able to go back to his excuse that it's because no one has his details that they never ever keep him in the loop about anything. Speaking of the Brexit Secretary and Lawnmower Man, Raab's speech at the conference mainly involved him having a go at everyone else for trying to stop Brexit. He accused Labour of opening the door to reversing Brexit, basically admitting the option was right outside waiting to get in from the cold all along. Then he said the EU needed to get serious on Brexit and do it right now, sounding like he was about to break into an 80s rap about respecting your mum. I'm fairly certain he only thinks the EU needs to get serious because they fall about laughing whenever he says anything to them. Then he complained about Project Fear talking about mobile phone charges rising, medicine shortages and planes being cancelled, despite all those details coming from reports from his own department. To finish it off, he then said it's now time for us all to come together. Great uniting work, Rob. I swear he's one of the few people that could fix the Israel-Palestine situation simply by trying to get involved in it and both sides joining together over them thinking he's a massive twat. But Rob's speech pales in comparison to the Foreign Secretary and Microsoft Office paperclip Jeremy Hunt, who, in his talk to the conference, compared the EU to the Soviet Union. Although I'm certain that's probably because in his head it's also exactly the same as the Rugby Union and the Union Theatre, just because it's got the same word in it. Before all that, the Labour conference ended last week with a speech from party leader and Elijah Wood from the future coming back to warn current day Elijah Wood that he will get quite ill, Jeremy Corbyn. He said he would fight anti-Semitism with every breath he possesses, but that was a slightly dubious promise because after that, he then later said he'd reduce emissions. Hmm, suspicious. Am I right? Overall, though, Corbyn's speech was aimed at, as he said, the new majority, which sounds like a good strategy, but I suppose that depends on how long the old majority stick around for. I mean, they are the majority, and if he's for the many, not the few, then if he wants a new many, then he has to stick up for the few, not the many, until the few outnumber the many, and all of that is going to take ages, so maybe he should just stick up for the current mediocrity instead. Welsh Nationalist Party Plaid Cymru have a new leader after Paddy Considine character Adam Price beat Happy Valley Leanne Wood in a leadership contest. Adam said that he is a modern inclusive leader and that no one will be left behind and no second class travellers on their journey to a confident, prosperous and independent Wales. Judging by all the Welsh transport I've ever been on, that should take them about four times longer than they expect then. And lastly, life expectancy has stalled in the UK for the first time since 1982, which I reckon is just the Conservatives' main electorate thinking, do you know what, it really isn't worth sticking around to vote for this lot anymore. 
Good anytime, listeners. That's my new podcast-only greeting, as all of you listen to this at different times of day. And that way, I'm being super inclusive to your listening activities, whatever your eerie preference. Um, that's eerie, like, you know, your ears, not as in creepy. I will not be inclusive of your creepy preferences. This is a family-friendly podcast, I'll have you know, uh, just one that has all the swears in it, like fuckbox and shitwagon. So good anytime. It sounds good, doesn't it? I'm definitely going to keep it. And hello to all you new listeners uh, who continue to pour into this show, well, like a very slow pouring thing but hey all good things uh, and that right um you are very very welcome to be here listeners new and of course old who are very welcome to come back and of course medium whoever you are i guess uh, if you're mediums you already knew i was going to say that anyway uh, and i hope you all enjoyed the bonus interview stuff from last week and thanks to those of you who contact me to say that you did um i am as you can probably tell by this very rambly nonsense supremely tired like think about how tired you are i am more tired than that absolute fact i'm the sort of tired that if someone was describing me in a crowd to someone else they'd ignore all of my obvious bearded features to simply say he's the tired one and everyone would go oh him i mean of course you might be as tired as me if you like me have a six month old who is currently going through the six month regression uh, which is when babies of that age suddenly decide not to sleep very much all over again after months and months of luring you into thinking that you might actually have normal sleep times at some point It's for good reason, because it's really due to getting all these extra brain powers and skills. So I'm sure that that while I grumble and gripe about being forever tired, it's only a few days before she'll suddenly know Kung Fu and, I don't know, how to make a casserole or something, and it will all be very, very worth it. But, oh dear God, I'm so tired. Um, Yesterday, we took uh, my daughter to Bockett's Farm in Surrey Way uh, with some friends of ours and spent ages taking her around to see small rabbits, big horses, and one particularly pissed-off donkey. And our daughter absolutely delighted in ignoring all of them uh, and just trying to take her own socks off. I was really angry and then I realised at my age of 37 and with my uh, overweight status taking my own socks off is actually one of the hardest parts of my day so um, fair play to her for already being better than me that's quite incredible. Um, we did also see a pig race uh, and for your information Piggy Stardust won and sadly the one I backed Beyonce, uh, Beyonce I think um, didn't uh, so um, those are sad times. Anyway sorry on to the actual show uh, which was this week meant to be all about the Labour conference and all those things and then of course over the last few days the Conservatives have been involved in headlines of such a stupid nature that it's very hard to decide to talk about Labour promising to maintain the triple lock pension when there's a festival of Brexit Britain to laugh your face off about instead. So, you know, as I've said before, I try and be sort of fairly balanced. I mean, in that I will openly say how much I hate this current government uh, and have preferences towards Labour. But I try and be, I try and take the piss out of people, you know, regardless of what party. But it's very, very hard to just not focus on the party in charge when they do shit like that. Um, anyway, there will be more Labour conference stuff later though but before all of that um, thank you big time to Dave and Hazel for the Kofi donations to ko-fi.com forward slash bro which um, saved me from more furry coffee disasters it's hugely appreciated um, and of course should you wish to buy me a coffee or indeed hot beverage of your choice I mean it won't be your choice you just donate the money and then I might even use it for a cold beverage because I ladies and dental men um, am a total rapscallion what the fuck are you going to do about it um, but yeah should you wish to donate uh, enough for me to get to say a drink um you can do that there at the uh, ko-fi page um also a big thank you to helen who is already a patron of the show but has upped her monthly donation which is super appreciated um and if you feel you can spare enough to buy me one drink or even half a drink every month then please do that at patreon.com forward slash bro and all of it helps me spend more time on this show although to be fair the amount of drinks uh, that you're sort of buying me with it they lead to quite a lot of loo breaks so that's probably actually decreasing that time so i guess you know swings and roundabouts or if you're in the US listening to this just swings um thank you also to the reviews that have been added to the apple podcast 
podcasts or iTunes page. And please do keep popping more of them on. You don't even have to write anything on iTunes. You can just hit the star rating and barely have to waste a brain cell on it. Um, also, massive shout out to Eleni, who tweeted that because of this podcast, she has been adding an extra the disgrace in her head whenever she reads about disgraced MP Liam Fox and disgrace. Excellent work. That is absolutely correct. And if we all work really hard and constantly encourage other people to do that, everyone will start adding the extra one because he is twice disgraced and yet still somehow allowed to ruin people's dinners in the future. Um, if there's any other ways this podcast has been brainwashing you, please let me know and I will start uh, learning from that and then slipping in subliminal messages throughout so you all send me snacks. Um, and I don't know why, that's just sort of the uh, the obvious route to go. Um, only other bit of admin this week is a gig that I'm doing in London end of this month uh, because it's now October. The year has just hurtled by, hasn't it? Mostly screaming. Um on October 24th, I am hosting a night called Choose Laughs at the Backyard Comedy Club with a lineup including, check this bill, Tony Law, Phil Wang, Fern Brady, Lou Sanders and Dane Baptiste, um, all in aid of the charity Help Refugees, who are a bloody wonderful bunch. Uh, tickets are £18 in advance or £20 on the door, so find at Choose Laughs on Twitter and grab them early via the link. Um, I believe you can also find the link via uh, the Ticket Text website. Um, it will be very, very good. Uh, those acts are brilliant, and then I will be briefly ruining in between all of them so do that hurry up come on manners oh and if for some reason um, you want to know about other gigs I'm doing and all the things I do that aren't this podcast then you can sign up to my mailing list at tiernanduyeb.co.uk spell that dickheads um, I'm only joking t-i-r-n-a-n-d-o-u-i-e-b.co.uk forward slash contact and I will be sending out the October email with things like the link for that cheese laugh gigs in it uh, as well you see I've thought of everything haven't I uh, you're not really dickheads that was, that, how, what a horrible way to treat the listenership why, why do you suppose people don't don't come to this podcast? Why do you suppose you have hundreds of thousands of listeners to and well, Yeah, I mean, you know, I wonder why. Anyway, um, look, on this week's show, so tired. Um, and that is all the admin. I know, right? You've done pretty well this week. On this week's show, I will be looking at the end of the Labour conference and the beginning of the Conservative one. And yes, I will be using that terrible jingle because I am too tired to make a new one. Uh, also, I interviewed Becca Hudson, who, I mean... Where do I begin? She's done loads. She's just done loads of stuff. She's an activist and a writer and a director and organiser and she does many good things and so I asked her about lots of them. And there is no Brexit fallout this week. But you know that's only because really everything is Brexit fallout. But of course, first up, here is this. On Friday, a whole load of heads descended on Downing Street. No, it wasn't some sort of terrifying zombie horror storm where decapitated ghouls came to spook May and rebalance karma. Unfortunately, it wasn't that. Instead, it was heads as in head teachers who all bunked off school and marched to number 10, hopefully telling everyone in their way not to talk over them and to wait around the corner and not come back until they thought about what they've done. The reason for the march of over 2,000 of them, all in their suits and ties and smart clothes like head teachers do, so you know they mean business, well, it was... Sadly, unsurprisingly, to demand more funding, because so many of them now have school budgets that are in complete crisis, and no one wants pupils' maths lessons to predominantly be the whole class working out how many of them the school can afford to teach the following year. The government insists that school spending is at record levels, which is correct, but it's that not-so-clever thing where they do it in terms of pounds, so yes, it is at record levels, but in terms of inflation and increase in pupil numbers, unfunded pay rises, national insurance increases, and probably having to spend more time dealing with pupils who want to go into politics and keep making things up and insist on being willingly destructive. OK, I've made that last one up, but because of the other things, funding is actually down by 8% per pupil since 2010. 
In fact, while the government have said there is an increase of £1.3 million in funding, it's actually just a reduction from the £3 million cut that schools were going to get. It's like stealing half of your pal's bag of crisps and telling them that they've had a 50% increase in crisps because you decided not to snatch the whole bag. This is having an impact on things like school buildings which are falling apart and while that might be every kid's dream, it actually means they're just dangerous for children to be taught in. There are cuts to teaching staff, class sizes increasing and no extra support for the most vulnerable pupils. And on top of that, parents are being asked to pay extra for things like pens, paper and toilet roll. Although, why you need paper and toilet roll, I don't know. I mean, there's a saving right there. Sorry miss, I did my homework but then I had to use it. Best excuse ever. The whole way schools are funded changed this year with a national funding formula instead of 152 local formulas. But as with all these things, what works for one area doesn't necessarily work for another and the Education Policy Institute have said that things will get even worse for the most disadvantaged primary and secondary schools, particularly in cities, who could see an overall loss of £16.1 million by 2019 and 20. So that's why thousands of headteachers, many of whom had said they'd never taken part in a political march before, decided to travel from all over the UK to protest, but sadly the Prime Minister's response was still to roll out the old, oh but they've got £1.3 million more funding again, like she definitely needs to work on her problem solving. If getting sent to the headteacher means you're in a lot of trouble, it says quite a lot that headteachers are so angry they sent themselves to Downing Street. Fingers crossed the government learn their lesson soon. The group that organised the protest are called Worthless, and you can find them on Twitter at WorthlessFF. One of the many things I've been wanting to do with this podcast is make someone else do it so I can have some sleep. But as no one else is stupid enough to do that, the other thing I wanted to do is speak to more people who go out and actually fight to change things. I mean, not physically fight obviously this isn't ruffian cast which i now assume exists and really want to listen to so no i mean people who fight politically like campaigners and activists i mean unlike me i'm very much an inactivist but i am very good at sitting so i think that's fair play to your strengths but this week i interviewed one of those such activist people and this such people is becca hudson now becca's cv reads like a long list of impressive political things to have already done despite only being in her 20s she's one of the co-founders of grime for corbyn the independent music movement fronted by artists such as Stormzy and JME that led to encouraging millions of young people to vote for the Labour Party in the snap election last year. Becca was also recently working for Radical Housing, a collective that are campaigning for housing justice, and on top of all that she works with several other organisations as well as writing articles for many publications and directs and write plays and music videos and oh god, I'll be honest, I'm feeling exhausted just going through this very impressive list. I met Becca a while back through the rapper Awate, who was on this podcast last year for any of you long-term listeners. And she's exactly the sort of person I wanted to talk to about what she's up to, but also how she got involved in, well, being political. Because it's always emboldening to hear about other people who are just passionate about fighting for change. Now, as I've said, this isn't just on one subject. And as I've mentioned about 600 times on this show, I'm a little bit sleep-deprived brain dead this week. So there are times when instead of asking Becca just one question in a good interview manner, I went off on weird tangents and asked her several questions all at once because I really hadn't had enough coffee. And luckily, Becca was ever the professional and answered everything brilliantly anyway. So I hope you enjoy. And here is Becca. So when I was uh, researching what to talk to you about, Becca, um, you it sort of turns out that you do a lot of stuff, right? And I knew you did some stuff, but you've done tons of stuff, uh, all the way from sort of Grime for Corbyn, which I think is uh, the first time I met you was just after that. And then there's Radical Housing, then there's your articles and your filmmaking and all the events. Um, so I thought I'd just start by asking you what got you kind of being political? What kind of kick-started all of this? Was there something that that happened that made you suddenly think you needed to use all your skills in writing and films and stuff for political issues? 
Um, I think really like a lot of people, I guess I was just politicised by um, by my life, like by kind of growing up and seeing what was going on with people around me, um, whether that was like in my family, my friendship group. Um, growing up in London, you obviously see, you kind of have a, like, you know, you're at the front row and also participating in a city that's like, can be really violent and is extremely unequal so i think like witnessing all of that uh, definitely shaped my view on the world um my parents also are kind of like a little bit political with a small p and so that kind of talking to them and talking also to my brother definitely like helped shape my views i think the most kind of real watershed moment for me was actually when i was 10 years old and 9 11 happened uh and that was like this obviously like has totally then characterized uh, the world that we live in now. Um, and through looking at how that was being framed and presented and how it then um, was kind of uh, pursued the war in Iraq as a result, grow, you know, coming of age, I guess, becoming a teenager during that time period was really informative and it made me see and kind of question particularly like, uh, imperialism and war um and the way in which like violence was framed in different ways depending on who was committing it uh and that i think that was like a kind of foundational thing that really made me be like oh wow like this is this is the world that we live in and this is how it's constructed um and i guess i didn't really do that much political stuff um other than just like you know talking about it with people that i knew or kind of saying what i thought until much later actually when I was kind of in my, my early 20s which is when I went to I think I went to an event where they were talking about um, women and sexual violence and it was at that event that they had like some really amazing political organizers on the panel um, and it was really through what they were saying that I thought oh wait a minute this is not just something that like happens to you or that you see and discuss this is something that you can actually like really actively participate in in really direct ways to force change and that doesn't necessarily have to be even electoral politics parliamentary politics it can be uh within your community and it can be kind of just really direct and informal uh, and then that's what sort of got me pumped about the idea of uh doing things myself and then i was also had been interested uh, in writing and filmmaking for a long time kind of my whole life but they were things which uh sparked my interest and so i thought well these are skills that i have uh and then yeah then it was just doing stuff writing stuff filming stuff getting involved in campaigns organizing meetings um and yeah it snowballed from there and as you say it's become a very kind of sprawling broad range of experiences in loads of different kind of movements on different issues um all of which I've just really enjoyed and found fascinating and some of which we've had great victories for. I mean, it's it's a it's an amazing CV that you've got just sort of on your website and that looking at it. And as I said, I think one of the first times I met you was with um, Awate, and it was just after I think the Grimes for Corbyn movement. I can't remember if it was just before or uh, sorry, just during or just after. Um, and you were quite sort of uh, active in that, and, and you helped organise a lot of events for that. So how did that get started, and what was it about that? Because I think one of the things that amazed me with Grimes for Corbyn is it was one of the music kind of politics collaborations that actually seem to work because they don't always work um and bless even with like labor i think when they did one with like ub40 everyone just went what but grind for corbyn was a music 
kind of politics movement that seemed to actually have an effect. So why do you think that was? I think really what was essential about what made Grime for Corbyn a as big, well, as big as it was and also as successful as it was. So I think something which made it huge was that, particularly for a kind of like a mainstream, kind of mainstream commentators uh, and like political pundits, that these were two things that they saw as totally opposed to one another. This sort of like um, mild-mannered, uh, older backbencher MP who they thought was a bit odd and had become leader in a kind of fluke. And then these sort of, um, what they see as totally removed, like young people, particularly young black people making music. And they didn't understand how these two things were connected or how they had anything in common. Uh, and I think it was that juxtaposition, even though I don't believe that those things are opposed at all. And actually you can see from lots of musicians and lots of different communities, how they've come out in support of Corbyn and how much overlap there is in those politics and their kind of view on the world. It was immediately seen by the media as something which was like an oddity and kind of funny uh, in the way in which it was juxtaposed. And I think that's what grabbed people's attention in terms of the amount of uh, attention that it got, um, particularly, as I say, from kind of mainstream platforms. They, I think they paid attention because they found it strange and a bit funny. But I also, I think, in terms of its success, really that came from the fact that it was organic. So even though, yeah, um, I was part of a kind of network of people who put on events um, under the Grand for Corbyn name, um, and kind of managed the hashtag on the website and actively went to mobilise young people registering to vote. It was started way before that, so it really grabbed people's attention at first when grime artists off their own back just said that they supported Corbyn and Corbyn's labour. So you had novelist Jamie, AJ Tracy coming out and saying that they liked Corbyn. Um, and they liked the kind of political promises that he was offering people. Um, and that was what got people excited initially. And all we did really was kind of formalise that into this campaign that had a name and then held events to really celebrate and amplify that moment. But the moment itself was totally organic. And so I think sometimes with those kind of, even when they're not musicians, like even when they're kind of filmmakers or other people in the arts and they come out for a particular political cause, when it's really rehearsed and manufactured, people can tell and it all feels slightly inauthentic. Um, but there was that kind of collection of different grime artists who said that they supported Corbyn was something which happened organically and it was really that that then built momentum around it from loads of different pockets across the country and people in the music industry, people in different communities, people in the kind of more political world that just found this organic overlap. Um, and it was also, you know, it was an independent thing. We weren't doing it under the under the guise of the Labour Party or even, you know, as part of Momentum or any other sort of formal organisation. It was an independent thing and it was something that was off the cuff. Um, and it was quite joyful and celebratory. It wasn't about hardcore endorsements of this or that policy. You know, we had at the flagship event in London, we had people on stage talking about Big Up the NHS and Bon Theresa May, but it was, it was joyful, it was fun, it was playful. Um, and I think that helped it also kind of continue to feel uh, real to people and feel like it was something enjoyable rather than something forced. 
Yeah, I, I think it's also one of the things that, that, that baffled people, isn't it? Because they, the fact that it wasn't kind of, uh, you know, it was it was an independent movement. It wasn't under Labour or anything like that. I think um, a lot of people don't, or one of the things I've realised is that a lot of people didn't realise that grime is political and has been political for a long time. And I think I saw that you're going, is it a, a tonight that you're going to talk about the kind of way in which sort of uh, drill and grime music uh, are basically said that they encourage violence, they often look down upon by kind of police and people in power. And I think to have a music like grime actually come and go, no, we're quite actively political and we can make a difference. I think that was really powerful. Yeah, completely. And that's what I mean. I think part of the sort of, the media reaction which was this sort of isn't this funny this sort of geography teacher looking guy and all of these like young black people uh isn't that an odd pairing actually in many ways grime for corbyn wasn't about politicizing young people it was about getting mainstream platforms to recognize and acknowledge the fact that young people and particularly uh creative expression in young people whether that's grime or you know many other genres as well uh, is politicised and often is and always has been. And it was more about those commentators recognising that and seeing it for what it was and paying attention as opposed to kind of making young people interested in politics as if they weren't before. Um, yeah, so I almost feel like the people we mobilised were journalists in a way as opposed to mobilizing <laughs> young people because the young people were there and they were interested and they were having those discussions and, you know, have their own kind of political culture anyway whether it's paid attention to or not. Yeah, I mean, that's, it's really interesting that you say it because I think that's one of the things I wanted to ask you about is that I remember after the last election that uh, it was several months after they did all the analysis and they kind of said, oh, the youth quake that Labour was meant to have uh, had didn't happen, you know. Um, but I've sort of just from lots of political gigs and things I've done, I've met so many young people that seem to be more politicised now than ever before. Um, do you think there is a disconnect between young people and politics? Is that absolute nonsense um and and if it is nonsense why aren't people kind of highlighting all the youth activism that's going on i mean i think that it is there's a disconnect between those kind of um formal channels of parliamentary politics and uh large numbers of young people but i don't think as i said i think that young people um often not all of them but you know there are large swathes of young people who are politicized and who are extremely sharp and politically active uh, but it's often not through those sort of formal channels. Um, so voting, even just voting, for example, is something which you see that, you know, older people come out and vote in much higher numbers than young people do. Um, and that's been something which has gone on for a really long time. But I do think there are, I mean, even just the, the panel that we had at the London Grime for Corbyn event, there was a there were five young people, all of whom were like incredibly active in their communities in different ways, whether that was Temi, who runs the Forefront Project, um, looking at the kind of um, systemic causes behind uh, youth violence and looking for community healing and ways to solve the problem of youth violence. Or there was Toffee, who was 12 years old, a poet, um, and he did an absolutely incredible moving poem where, you know, people were crying, which was about um, supporting, I think it was his cousin, uh, for her to go and get a job and feel confident in an interview. Um, and he wanted the poem to also be for anybody who felt like they needed a bit more confidence. So, you know, I see that also as, a, you know, that's people supporting others within their communities to do positive things. And there was a huge amount of that, but I think it often doesn't break down into 
the sort of formalised channels which people are used to seeing as political. Uh, and that gets reflected in the kind of policies that are handed down to young people. You know, the increase in tuition fees, taking away of housing benefit, um, lower wages. You know, there's a whole load of policies which give young people a kind of really raw end of, of the political deal. And that's because they're not recognised as, I guess, an important or a kind of um, transformative voting block but actually they really could be. And there's a massive amount of work that young people do that I think does just go kind of unsung and unrecognised. I mean, do you think part of it is, is this is something that I sort of uh, always wonder is that, you know, young people have so many pressures on them right now with like high living costs and like benefit cuts and housing issues and education issues and all these sort of things that when have they got time to be political? <laughs> you know, when have they got time to be to do activism and kind of go out and protest when they're struggling to survive quite a lot? Totally. And I think, all you know, again, this is about reframing what we consider to be uh, kind of understood as activism, right? So, you know, from all many, many campaigns that I've been involved in, you see the way in which people who are living in, you know, have, have more difficult living conditions, be that, you know, high rents, uh, childcare responsibilities, uh, you know, have to take really really long travel because they can't afford to get on the tube all kinds of things mean that it just takes up huge amounts of people's time uh, working really long hours for really terrible pay etc etc um, and you're right it means that kind of engagement in meetings and campaigns um, can be difficult and there's more of a barrier than somebody who is perhaps more comfortable and therefore has more free time to engage and spend lots of time uh, working and thinking about how they might make political interventions within their community or on a national scale as well. But then I also think we have to see the way in which a lot of that work that's being done, even just, you know, caring for a friend or a relative who's sick, um, looking after children, going and uh, opening up community spaces, holding community events, all of these things. I mean, I don't mean to sort of um, glorify them as activism in a cheap way, but these are the things that keep holding the kind of fibres of society together. Uh, and you see lots of people of all ages doing that kind of stuff all the time. And particularly as services are kind of stripped away in this country, more and more people in just in their kind of informal lives and within their communities are doing the work of keeping one another alive that used to be more so the responsibility of the state. Um, and I think it's really important to recognise that and the way in which the kind of burden um, of caring for people has been lumped onto communities and it's totally unpaid work and it can be very draining work. And as people's living conditions get worse and worse, um, there are you know millions of people in this country who are kind of keeping each other going. Um, and actually, that's incredibly powerful. You know, those are the networks and the communities that are going to you know hold hope for this country. Um, yeah, absolutely. I am. Um, I was going to say you you were part of. Uh, sorry, uh, I'm going to edit that out. I had a temporary. I was just trying to look up your play uh, and then ask you about oh, it, and yeah. then uh, realised that uh, there you go. No, cool. I'll I'll do something else first. Um, I saw that because you, uh, you've been part of radical housing for quite some time, and I know you're just outgoing, uh, uh, just leaving there at the moment. But can you tell me about what they do and and what you did when you worked with them? Yeah, absolutely. So the Radical Housing Network is a network. Um, it has 30 to 35 roundabout members, um, all of whom are housing groups and campaigns across London. Um, so that's any any group in any kind of housing situation. They could be private tenants, they could be council tenants. Um, we also have members who are boaters and travellers. 
Um, and basically, it's just a network for those housing groups, all of whom are fighting for housing justice in different ways, to share resources, to come together and see the way in which their struggles might connect and how they might be able to work together to win things. Um, and so we have a huge amount of kind of resources and skills that are contained within that network. Um, and it's about five years old. So the network was set up when uh, five years ago there was a squat, um, there was an occupation in South London, and there was a huge amount of kind of buzz and energy around the housing movement in London at the time. And loads of different housing groups came to this occupation and had a kind of big assembly. And out of that, they decided that having a network where they could talk to each other, share resources, offer solidarity, discuss things would be really useful. And that's where the network was born. Uh, so my role, which, yeah, you're right, I've just left, but my role for two years was to be the coordinator of that network. Um, so that was mostly uh, admin job, really, kind of keeping the logistics of the network going, making sure that our meetings went ahead, uh, making sure that, you know, if somebody came to us or a particular group had an issue, that we could put them in touch with another group who were maybe more experienced on that issue or had skills in that area and just kind of facilitating uh, as much as possible all of those housing groups to do um, the best kind of collaborative work that they might be able to do and just trying to kind of win victories within the, the house against the kind of housing crisis in London. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. 
We'll be back with Beckett in a minute, but first, it's that shitty jingle again. It's September, October, so it stands to reason that right now it's conference season. That's political conferences, not conference pairs. Although if you plant them around now, they'll be really nice for next August. If you like pairs, that is. And if you don't, then maybe don't do that. Oh, conference season. We are heading into the final week of conference season, despite the fact that the Green Party still have their conference at the very end of the week. But hey, why delay the entire running, or more the case of faffing of the country for one MP? Yeah, Greens, you need to up your game. And maybe, just maybe, when you get a hefty 12 MPs like the Lib Dems, the entire country will wait for you. It's really silly, isn't it, that all of Parliament has to stop just for this? I do sort of wonder why they don't just do it like school when, say, some of the class left for choir practice and when everyone who, like me, had a voice that sounded like someone was pummeling a stoat into a barrel of gravel, then you'd get to sit and colour in something for a few hours. You know, while the Lib Dems are away doing their conference, Parliament could have happened as normal, but they could have just told the Lib Dems they were missed to make them feel better. And then while Labour were away, they could just all draw pictures of their idea of post-Brexit Britain and colour them in. And then while the Conservatives away, they could all quickly undo a lot of stuff and pretend they'd been doing collages and hope the Tories didn't notice, because really, all they care about right now is Brexit and they're ignoring everything else. Great plan, if I do say so myself. So, this week, uh, there is the Greens Conference at the end of the week, as I mentioned, and before that, the end of the Conservative Conference featuring May's speech, which last year was, I mean, it was incredible. She was handed a P45 by a heckler, then she coughed through the entire speech, and then a ton of magnetic letters fell off the board. And I have to say, that was a great speech. I mean, you know, from an entertainment point of view. If nothing else, it promoted the brilliant tragic comedy sense of humour Britain has. Uh, that's definitely something we can, we can export, right? And, and it really did nothing else. Uh, nothing else at all whatsoever. But this year, who knows? I mean, I'm hoping for a set of severe hiccups and farts at the same time before Boris tries to interrupt like Kanye with Taylor Swift at the VMAs. I'm going to stop you right there, but then missteps and falls off the stage, causing the entire backdrop to collapse so that the phrase opportunity printed on the back is split into, leaving just the word unity like an ironic joke. Yes, that is the word on the back of the Conservative conference this year. O-P-P-O-R-T-U-N-I-T-Y, which when correctly pronounced sounds like privilege. But before we get on to what's happening in Birmingham so far, let's take it back, way back, back into time, to the end of Labour's conference last week, which was, and I'm sad to say this from a comedy point of view, uneventful. Okay, that's a bit mean, as it wasn't as if interesting stuff didn't happen, it did. Just nothing that is anywhere near as easy to write gags about, because, well, some of it sounded quite sensible. All of it seems united between the Blairites and Corbynistas, or as you might view it, the right and the left of the party, or the centre-left and the left of the party, or the centre-right and the slightly left of centre-left, if you're Scandinavian. Or, you know, the ones who look like estate agents and like bombs, and the ones who look like they drink herbal tea and like banners. Take your pick of generalisations there, says I, a man who insinuated earlier that the entire Conservative Party speak lizard. <clears throat> anyway, apart from an interview on Channel 4 News where Corbyn insisted he was only on Iran's press TV before the Iranian government started arresting protesters in 2009, even though he was def definitely on it in 2012 and paid to do so, apart from that, which was weird, I mean... It was. You know, I mean, look, there are probably valid arguments as to being on that channel, say, using it to actively speak out against an authoritarian regime, for example. But then to deny you were there when there is recorded evidence that even idiots like me can find proves that you were, that is just odd. And to get paid to do it, too. I mean, don't get me wrong, I'll happily speak out against anything if you want to pay me 20 grand to do it. Well, OK, not anything. Not crisps. Never crisps. But look, apart from that, 
which is probably a whole other podcast. The conference was pretty scandal-free. Oh, wait, uh, also, apart from MP for Crew and Nantwich, Laura Smith, telling the World Transformed Fringe Conference that if they couldn't have a snap election, then there should be a general strike to bring down the government, which was frowned upon as reckless behaviour by lots of people who realise how quickly that would cause devastating problems for the government. I don't think it's a bad idea, to be honest. I mean, a general strike? Generals have a very hard time spending all day shouting at soldiers and wearing all those heavy badges, so maybe they should protest for better conditions. It totally fits with Labour's anti-war stance, which is regularly also contradicted by, oh, Jeremy Corbyn being sung to the tune of Seven Nation Army, an idea he'd definitely oppose. So, anyway, apart from that, and apart from all the arguing about the people's vote and the Iran Press TV thing, it went fairly well by political conference standards. Shadow Business Secretary Rebecca Long-Bailey announced a five-point plan to save the high street after 100,000 jobs in the retail sector have been lost in the past three years. Plus, of course, chains like House of Fraser going to administration and John Lewis reporting massive profit losses. So, uh, Rebecca Long-Bailey's plan uh, included scrapping ATM charges, free buses for under-25s, uh, so, um, you know, free bus passes, they don't just get a bus each, that would be insane, and free Wi-Fi in town centres, which is something that so many other cities around the world do, and it makes total sense, as it would help you easily tweet about how dead and shit your local high street is. She also announced new climate change proposals, which include 60% of the UK's energy coming from low-carbon or renewable resources within 12 years of being in power. Uh, and by that, I guess they obviously mean energy-saving power. To do this, they'd need to increase wind and solar power by seven times the current amount, which uh, Labour say would provide power to 19 million homes, plus would be combined with a home insulation programme, all of which would save a tonne of energy, uh, deal with fuel poverty and cause loads of jobs in the creation and labour of getting all of that sorted. And it's very nice to hear politicians actually openly talking about tackling climate change after years of just seemingly being content that we're all going to either be underwater or fighting for water in a weird land people versus sea people scenario. Of course, there is the cost of all of this, plus tackling the nimbyism that often makes people say, oh, but I don't want a wind farm near me because they look ugly, completely unaware that you know what looks worse? The end of the world, dickhead, stop it. But by starting this conversation, it may encourage the Conservatives to at least consider not being taken to court yet again for inaction on air pollution. I mean, you'd think May would be against coughing her way through another speech. Bloody hell. As for Corbyn's speech, while it probably won't help him gain any new fans, it also contained a lot of stuff that the Conservatives can't really oppose if they want to keep votes on side. I'm not really sure what that means in politics, that political cock-blocking? I mean, God, that'd be a tiring job in Parliament, and where to start? Well, whatever it is, Corbyn had five main speech points, one of which was climate change, so I won't waste more energy on going over that again. Another was Labour's type of radical politics, which aren't really that radical, but they are for 2018 UK, so they sort of are, but I mean, come on, everyone. Labour's type of radical politics are now the new normal, said Corbyn. And in a way, he's not wrong. I mean, public opinion is that nationalising the railways and energy and water companies is now a good idea, and many are sick of austerity politics and want a change. Corbyn said that Labour's policy on giving workers more power and a share of company profit is now the new centre ground, which it would be uh, if the Conservatives weren't so against it and have just retracted their policy to even insist companies have workers' representatives as board members. I mean, the problem with centre ground is that it constantly moves depending on where everyone is, but I guess if it does move to the left, then technically the left of Labour are right-wing, and that will please and annoy quite a lot of people within Labour. I really hope they're using a spirit level so no one gets unfairly upset. Then there was Brexit, and the big announcement by Corbyn was that Labour would back May's Brexit deal if she, you know, completely changed her deal so it wasn't anything like her deal and most of her party abandoned her. I mean, Corbyn may as well have followed that easy policy up with his new plan to get blood from stones. He still insists all Brexit options are on the table, which, well, I'm glad I don't have to clean that table because there's a lot of mess on there. So much mess. So much. 
Of course, uh, another main point was about anti-Semitism, which Corbyn has vowed to fight uh, against, obviously, I mean, and will work with Jewish communities to eradicate it. But he still didn't apologise about anti-Semitism within the party as such. And in his part about foreign policy, he said Labour would definitely recognise the state of Palestine, which is something I approve of. But I assume all the Jewish people that don't trust him still don't because of comments like that. And those that still do probably just still do. And hey, at least they've got a Brexit plan nearly, guys. Hey, guys, guys. Jezza did say that he accepted that Russia were behind the Sergei Skripal poisoning, which now stops everyone saying that he's a secret Russian agent or spy or whatever it was that he was meant to be doing while also being completely useless. And lastly, there was Corbyn's promise to keep the triple lock pension, which the Conservatives have also promised to keep, but just till 2022. And it means that the government will raise the basic pension by either average earnings, inflation or 2.5%, whatever is higher. Thing is, with so many people reaching pension age, state pension now costs £70 billion a year, so it may not actually be affordable to keep it for too long, especially depending on the outcome of Brexit. Oh, oh wait, now I see why the Conservatives are working so hard to store life expectancy. Clever move clever move. For the young'uns, Labour want to provide 30 hours free childcare for two to four year olds, not just three to four year olds as it currently is. And thing is, that is brilliant, but it will also cost at least 3.5 billion extra pounds to do, so that might be tricky. Here's an idea, here's my idea, why not just get all those old people who are still carrying on to look after all the two to three year olds? I mean, problem solved. I mean, that's me and my wife's plan anyway, just don't tell my parents just yet. Um, so that was Labour uh, and their conference and as I said if the Conservatives poo poo any of that then they're either dissing old folks, really young folks like younger than they usually ignore or the planner or workers all of which could be pretty damaging for them vote wise I mean well not the youngest ones obviously as they can't vote oh shit they're going to attack three year olds aren't they uh oh uh, before I get done for slander for saying that the Conservatives attack children, let's quickly look at all the fun of the Tory conference so far, which has mostly been nonsense about the EU, general bluster, loads of pointless threats, uh, and lots of stuff about how the Conservatives need to change, which is A, not very Conservative of them if they do, and B, what lots of them said last year and then they didn't. I mean, well, they did, but in a way that wasn't very Conservative anyway, like slagging off businesses and sabotaging their own party. Oh, wait, they are trying too hard to be like Labour. So far, apart from the app security error, which is yet another moment where I wonder if the Conservatives are more likely to be defeated by Labour, or, you know, just time and the future. Apart from that, they fired the person who does the magnetic letters that fell off the conference wall during May's speech last year, meaning they're now even less attractive as a party. Then you had Jeremy Hunt say the EU was a prison, and make a whole load of comments that once again makes me absolutely certain that the Conservatives don't realise that the EU can use the internet as well. I mean, I know I've touted it as an idea before, but I'm almost 100% certain that that is true now. And that maybe they think that the EU can't speak or read English unless they're in the same room as an English speaker or something like that. I mean, everyone has condemned Hunt's comments from Lords to members of the EU. And either he has a total lack of understanding that they'd see or hear what he said. Or maybe, just maybe, the Foreign Secretary job description says, must be a tactless twat with no concept of diplomacy. You know, like how up until Sadiq Khan, the London mayor job, insisted you had to mention Hitler at hugely inappropriate moments at least once a year. I mean, maybe that's it. Maybe that's what it is. I honestly cannot work it out otherwise. Dominic Raab's comments were similarly crass, like his face, and Jacob Rees-Mogg, like an amalgamation of Dickens villains wrapped in a pale skin, referred to Libya as, check this out, the People's Republic of Jamjar or something. 
What he was referring to was the Great Socialist People's Libyan Arab Jamahiriya, which is what Libya was called under Gaddafi. And yes, Colonel Gaddafi was a nutcase and he kept his enemies' heads in the freezer, which, to be fair, is a really good weight loss technique as I'd never get an ice cream if I knew I was being watched every time. But still, it's a sort of casual xenophobia that... Ah, oh God, I guess you'd just expect from Mog. What a shit show. But how does that work in our favour post-Brexit? I mean, are we going to be knocking on other countries' doors, asking if the Democratic Republic of whatever the fuck it is is in, and can we swap potatoes, and they'll almost certainly tell us to piss right off? Sheer stupidity, or a plan to make talks collapse, or just the way Mog has always got what he wanted from birth? I mean, maybe this is all just one big hilarious prank show. I honestly can't tell. I mean, but if you add it all up, I mean, Chris Grayling, the Transport Secretary responsible for so many trans- delays was late to his speech. Pretty Patel said that Brexit isn't going well because not enough people believe in Britain. I mean, you don't have to. It exists. It's not like fairies. It won't just vanish if you stop clapping, you idiot. Esther McVeigh insisted the Conservatives had a welfare system fit for the 21st century, which is probably why universal credit is being forced to work, even though in reality it's not capable of it. Michael Gove spent half his speech insulting Corbyn before saying the Conservatives will reverse the destruction of wildlife, despite his department recently abandoning their targets to improve wildlife sites and pushed ahead with fracking. The Conservatives' London mayoral candidate, Sean Bailey, talked about getting London autonomous buses, but never really explained how they'll work. I mean, last thing I want is to get on a bus and it tell me it's not going to go to my stop and I can't make it or tell it what to do because I'm not its dad. And really, it was only in the last few days Chancellor of the Exchequer Phil Hammond who had any sort of different tone or idea for change for the party, as he said that Labour have a case for failings of British capitalism and how people definitely want something different. So now he is offering 21st century capitalism, which is an evolution from old Tory economics. Now, apart from scaring off the DUP with that, he didn't actually say many interesting policies alongside that. But it was mainly stuff about trying to rebuild bridges with businesses that ironically big bridge fan Boris had previously burned. But it still means that Hammond recognises the Tories won't win elections unless they address public upset at austerity. Which, knowing the Conservatives, means they'll deal with it by doing austerity, but ever so slightly less, or with a marginally different name like schmosterity. But... That was sort of it out of all the last few days uh, that was of any interest. I mean, outside of the battle between Boris and May, or May and anyone who doesn't like her deal that's already been rejected by the EU and won't work. I mean, on the Mars show, she accused Labour and the EU of playing politics with Brexit. It is politics. You're meant to play politics with it. Is this why you've been playing fucking Trivial Pursuit with it the whole time? Just some weird edition with a ton of questions and no actual answers? Oh, God, sorry. I'm so angry. Fingers crossed for the fart hiccup attack during her speech on Wednesday, so at least we'll have something to cheer us up. More conference crap next week. And now, back to Becca. Oh no, sorry. I was just going to say it's all sort of supporting the the kind of community action idea that I know it's been it's been very big in the Labour conference as well this week that people kind of in their groups in their communities have got a lot more power than they think they have. Yeah, and that when they organise together, they can absolutely shift things in you know in huge ways, and that's what you see really. I mean, when whether it's a, an estate that's facing demolition or it's private renters whose landlords are leaving them with terrible disrepair issues. You see the way that actually when a group of people, even if it's not particularly big, but a group of people take really decisive, smart action, um, they can shift things. And that might be as small as getting somebody's repair done in their house or preventing somebody from being evicted. Um, and that kind of stuff can be monumental for it on an individual scale. But it can also be, you know, like getting letting agencies banned. Um, or getting councils to agree to more social housing in the development. 
uh, and stuff that yeah like really changes the landscape of like what it's like to live in in London and what the kind of housing options are here and what have you got so you you are you have left uh, radical housing what are you up to now then have you got other projects coming up um because i remember sort of uh i think sort of sponsoring i didn't get to see your your production a couple of years ago of jagged edge that sounded absolutely fantastic have you got more um projects like that and in fact probably i should ask you a bit more about that as well what was what was that about so that was uh it was a play but it was a kind of multimedia play we had dance we had film uh, we had a kind of riot that was danced halfway through, um, which I co-wrote and directed with um, Awate, who is a fantastic rapper whose music everybody should check out. And we wrote this play and then kind of worked with an amazing group of um, of actors and um, a choreographer as well to put together um, this multimedia stage exploration of kind of being displaced in different ways. So the main character goes through an eviction and she also then is at threat of deportation. Uh, so seeing the ways in which um, she's kind of rejected um, and expelled from from different communities and the, and the way in which her boss and her landlord and then uh, immigration enforcement uh, sort of are preying on her um, in different situations as she moves through the play. And we premiered it at the Rich, Rich Mix in East London. And then we had another performance as part of a festival of resistance at the London School of Economics. Um, and weirdly, after we, we premiered it in uh, at Rich Mix, and then two weeks after or a week after, there was the Brexit vote. And so, like, particularly my mum was like, oh my God, how did you know that was going to happen? Because there were lots of themes of this kind of like um, xenophobia and categorising people as legal or illegal, which were explored in the play and that then came to really characterise discussion around the Brexit vote um, and particularly like discussion after and the kind of conversations that are being had in society after the Brexit vote as well. Um, so, yeah, it seemed like something that was politically relevant at the time. But it was it was quite a hefty and ambitious project because we had quite a big cast. We had a massive uh, set that um, Gabe, our set designer, made from scratch. And yeah, it was a lot to, to kind of try and manage on a very, very small budget. Uh, but it was a lot of fun as well. Yeah, it's it's very hard with sort of uh, the the way in which arts is funded just makes it very hard to do projects like that anymore. Even though I, I think they're quite necessary. Um, but do, do you find that sort of it? You know, would you have liked to have toured that had there been any sort of funding? Yeah, well, I place? think if we'd been given the opportunity to develop it a bit further, um, yeah, to kind of refine it and develop it and go through some of those more um, kind of processes of artistic development both of the of the scripts and also kind of as a group of people um how we were working together and what the dynamics were going on in the group and how those could be presented on stage I think that would have been that would have been great but as you say you know there's the sort of the space that you get to to have that sort of dedication to a piece of art is is ever diminishing right um, we just had a small budget and then we had a crowdfunder and we had to kind of get it out and we had a deadline when we needed to perform and that was it. Um, but there are a lot of, um, well, there are a few kind of opportunities. I've recently, in the beginning of this year, I was a young producer at the Battersea Art Centre uh, and they are actually providing a lot of spaces for artists, particularly theatre, but also lots of different types of art, poetry as well um, and dance 
where artists can actually go and do that that kind of development stuff so they can go and do like scratch nights uh, and kind of stay with Battersea Art Centre over a period of time to develop their work and kind of develop themselves as an artist. And it's really rare to find and it's so valuable. Um, I think there's a huge amount of like buzzing creative stuff going on, particularly with young people in London. Um, and yeah, it needs to be, to be given like, you know, it needs to be nurtured and given space to breathe. Um, and yeah, BAC is one of the few places that really do that. They really commit to developing young people's art. Yeah, they're a really fantastic venue, the BAC. They have been for, for a very long time. Um, but I mean, I know you sort, of, you sort of briefly mentioned it earlier as well, but obviously, I mean, like, arts uh, and music is such an important way for young people particularly, but everyone really, to view the real happenings of the world through. Do you know what I mean? And I think that there's also a big issue, obviously, with people being able to afford to go and see arts. And so anywhere that facilitates both people who are politically active and young people making uh, arts that portray life and also then providing it at the affordable rate is is so important and so necessary right now yeah completely and it's so you know it's really interesting to see the way in which um even like you know quite establishment art institutions like the tate and the vna with their late program as trying to sort of reach into new audiences and invite people in and kind of um bring in different types of art that are working in a, in a in often in an underground capacity and in a really underfunded capacity but to bring them into those spaces um i met some weeks ago um a woman called toby who runs the black ticket project uh, and they provide free tickets to theater shows um for young black people and it's had such an overwhelming response in terms of the crowdfunder um, and the amount of young people who are really interested in going to see loads of really different types of theatre um, and the discussions that that theatre has provoked and how it means that these kind of quite closed off institutions that were seen as inaccessible and in lots of ways are still really inaccessible can actually engage with new audiences and bring them in and actually support um yeah, yeah, you know, people who uh, are being excluded from sort of establishment art institutions in this country to bring them in and engage with them in a really serious way. Uh, but yeah, there's like, you know, she, her, um, her idea was, has done really well, but there's so much scope for other people to, to, you know, continue with that work and build on it and, and see how art might change and how those art institutions might change for the future. Yeah, so uh, back to what I was sort of say, saying earlier, is I was asking you what um what have you got coming up? Have you got anything now that you've got in the works? Is there anything that you're particularly sort of feeling hopeful about or positive about in politics? Um, you know, what's what's next for you? So, I I oscillate between feeling like totally optimistic that there's going to be like a revolution tomorrow, um, and like particularly the work that I do with, with um, other young people often makes me feel really hopeful. Um, and then I read the news and I, then I become incredibly depressed and I think we're all going to, you know, the apocalypse is just around the corner. So I, <laughs> there are things that make me feel hopeful, but yeah, it's not a, it's not a sustained feeling. I kind of oscillate between the two, but I do think, um, I think that kind of Corbyn's labor movement does really offer well, I think, you know, in the realm of parliamentary politics, it's the only thing on offer um, which seems hopeful. Um, I, I think that there are still things which, which could be further developed there, and I think that they could be even more ambitious. Um, but, you know, I, in terms of that sort of formal political landscape, 
I see that kind of producing excitement and hope in, in lots of different types of people in different communities. Um, and so, you know, I look forward to seeing what happens and seeing what a Corbyn government might look like. Uh, in terms of the kind of art scene, I think it's like there's so much going on um, that's incredible. Um, there's a, an event on the 6th of October called Under Construction, which is run by a film collective called Under London, who I worked with when I was at BAC. Uh, and that's a showcase of loads of different types of art. So there's spoken word, they have singers, they have panels. Um, and they're showing lots of new kind of cutting-edge film as well. And so I'm going to go to that, and I think going to events like that, where it's just an art showcase um, of new and emerging talent and often stuff that's been done on a budget and it's been really DIY, but the kind of quality uh, of work that young people are making is so impressive and really, really exciting. In terms of what I'm doing now, I've just um, been accepted onto an independent film trust scheme, uh, which is about diversity in cinema. So I'm going to be going, spending the next week at the Raindance Film Festival uh, and hopefully... Oh, wow, that's really exciting. Yeah, 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 I'm really... I didn't realise when I applied just what we were being offered, but it's a really amazing scheme. It's called Vertical Lab um, and they do it every year. They're actually crowdfunding to do it around the country, not just in London. So definitely, yeah, check out their crowdfunder. Uh, and yeah, they give, um, they offer diverse filmmakers access to rain dance courses um, and mentorship. And you can kind of ask to be put in touch with uh, and mentored by and have private sessions with people within the film industry that you think uh, would be beneficial to you in your artistic practice, whether that's writers, producers, editors, anything. Uh, so I'm just like tonight going to go to the rain dance opening gala and hang out with the other people who are in my cohort and hopefully meet some people with, who are kind of showing their films at Raindance. So that's really exciting. And again, like to be given that sort of support um, is so fantastic. Because as much as I often, when I go to kind of events about youth and the arts, people say, you don't have to ask permission, you know, you can just do it at DIY. And although I think that's really true, when you do have an organisation like the Independent Film Trust um, sort of supporting you and, and giving you permission and saying that, you know, you're good enough to be here and we're invested in developing you as an artist. It's just so heartening because it can be really, really isolating trying to produce art, particularly particularly like political art um, in the current climate. And so, yeah, I was very appreciative of the scheme and excited about what will come out of that. Yeah, I mean, it, it sounds brilliant. And that's, that's really exciting. Congratulations. Um, and I think that that thing of, uh, while it is, I think, changing, there is still very much a kind of old boys network in the world of films and in the world of theatre and all that sort of thing. And, and it sounds like schemes like that kind of crack that open a little bit and let other people in and start to change it. Yeah, I hope so. And like, yeah, producing, you know, your own old boys networks, right? Like the young girl network or whatever. <laughs> like that actually um, there are so many incredibly talented, skilled, sharp, interesting people um, who are on the same level as you kind of operating, uh, whether that's in the arts or, you know, in politics and loads of different arenas. And actually when you get together and kind of put your heads together and do something, it can make a massive difference. And that's, you know, in terms of our learning from Grime for Corbyn, that's what that was. That was just like a few of us who knew each other from school, making a website with no money and ended up, I think research showed we affected the votes of 
25% of Grime fans, and there was a um, a young guy who was doing his his uni dissertation on the movement, and he estimated that we'd affected the votes of 2.1 million people. So it can, you know, and that was just mates sitting around the table and going, oh, we need to do something, and this looks like it could be really good, and we know a few people who could get involved, and we could put on a great night and it may just be a small night with a few of our friends who are DJs and a couple of people we know who are MCs, but then it blew up. And then, you know, even in that DIY manner, you can really kind of do impactful stuff. That is, that is really incredible and really inspiring too. I mean, just as you said, if that doesn't inspire at least someone to get out there and make a website, uh, if nothing else, that's, you yeah, know, yeah, yeah. to do something for change. That's, that, that, yeah. Absolutely, that's really exciting. Um, and just uh, thanks so much for speaking with me. And I've got one last question, which is what I ask all of our guests. And um, I was going to ask you—you've you've obviously mentioned quite a few uh, different brilliant projects and, and, and groups so far, like Forefront and Under Construction and the Vertical Lab. But um, who else would you recommend listeners follow or read or check out about youth activism, housing, or just political theatre and art? What? Who, who are you looking at at the moment? Who do you enjoy reading the opinions of? Oh, so many. I think. So in terms of housing, one of the really exciting things that's going on right now is um, the London Renters Union, which is a new union, um, especially takes like the trade union model and applies it to renters. Um, and they're getting loads of members and setting up different branches across the city. So if you're interested, particularly in like the private rental sector, uh, which is, of course, incredibly atrocious, like it's so extortionate and often tenants are treated horribly and evicted and stuff like that. If you're interested in addressing those issues, then I would follow the London Renters Union, the Radical Housing Network um, as well. And in terms of the arts world, the person that I mentioned, Toby, who runs the Black Ticket Project, um, following her and seeing what she, she does, a huge range of stuff, not just the Black Ticket Project. And that's, I think, really worth following her. Forefront, if you are interested um, or you are kind of, you know, incredibly upset and tired of of seeing headlines about young people hurting each other all the time, then I think following the Forefront projects and looking at the healing community work that they do, which is really solution focused and creative and totally led by young people is essential. Um, and Battersea Arts Centre as well in terms of... Um, developing that crossover of sort of arts and social change stuff. I think Battersea Arts Centre are a really good one. And Cardboard Citizens, um, who are a theatre company, um, particularly focused focused making theatre with people who have an experience of homelessness. Uh, and they have a kind of new scheme that's focused on arts and social change. And also a, a, a new scheme, which is just about like developing youth um, activism and campaigning and so looking at the cardboard citizens and their, their kind of projects which are new and really exciting and developing is also I would recommend but there's loads more as well <laughs> Thank you to Becca for the lovely, lovely chat. Uh, Becca is just one of those people whose overall enthusiasm and passion for activism I find inspiring, so I hope you did too. I mean, just knowing that you start a free website and could end up influencing millions, that is pretty amazing. Uh, that is also totally what I would say if Squarespace ever want to promote this podcast. <clears throat> nudge, nudge, Squarespace. Nudge, nudge. Um, you can follow uh, Becca on Twitter at Beck, uh, B-E-C-K-A-S-H underscore, and check out all the many things 
she's involved in at BeccaHudson.com. Radical Housing, which I didn't ask enough about, are on Twitter at Radical Housing or on their website at RadicalHousingNetwork.org. And all the other links and organisations Becca mentioned will be up on this episode's page of the website at some point soonish. Please keep guest suggestions coming. Um, I particularly would like at the moment people to interview about Welsh, Scottish and Northern Irish politics, as I'm a bit overdue on checking in on all of those. Um, Also, I'd love to interview someone about defence stuff. I've never had someone like that on the podcast. uh, And it's very hard knowing who to talk to that isn't just yay guns or nay guns. If there's someone that's somehow a bit in between, it would be interesting. Um, Similarly, I'd also love to interview campaigners and activists who aren't from London. Uh, If you don't live in London, A, well done on being able to afford beer without taking out a loan. And B, please let me know about local grassroots organisations or campaigners near you that I might be able to have a chat with. Uh, what with me living in London and having a very, very tired dad brain, it is a lot harder for me to find such interviewees when I don't have a personal recommendation about who to speak to. So if you can help, please do. And of course, you can send those recommendations too at Bro on Twitter, the Partly Political Broadcast group on Facebook, the contact page on partlypoliticalbroadcast.co.uk or by emailing partlypoliticalbroadcast at gmail.com. Or, you know, just leave it on your profile at the Conservative Conference app and then when everyone sees your details, they can pass on the message. <laughs> Joke, as if I'd be going. Definitely uh, best to just email. And that is all from this week's Partly Political Broadcast podcast. Tar Muchley for having a listen. And please don't forget that if you enjoy this show, why not spread the love? And after you've done that and adequately cleaned up, why don't you tell other people about this podcast as well? <laughs> Naughty jokes. Uh, please also review the show on your favourite podcast app. And if you can, donate to the Patreon and Ko-fi too. And don't forget to check out the website at partlypoliticalbroadcast.co.uk for transcripts and links and all of that doodah if you're interested in wasting away even more of your life that you won't get back on this show. But hey, it's all worth it, right? Right? Danku to Acast for placing this podcast in its audio curatings, and also to my brother, The Last Skeptic, who still lets me use his music for the show, even though I don't always loop it properly, and it probably makes him slightly sad. This will be back next week when Boris Johnson will announce that his new plan to solve the Irish border problem is just to paint all of Northern Ireland blue, and that way the EU won't know that it's there anymore and just think it's more sea. Bye! This week's show is brought to you by the Festival of Brexit Britain exclusive app. Find out when the bands promise to be on, but know that they will likely delay it for two years, followed by a transition period between them and the band before. Check out exclusive interviews with xenophobic people who assume anyone in Europe won't be able to hear them and connect with other users who've already got your contact details because, oh, we messed up the security. Get the Festival of Brexit Britain exclusive app now. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus. Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. 
Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.